Hello everyone, I'm Chaitan Bhatt, I'm Director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE and I'd like to welcome you to this special and important event hosted by the Centre on the global theft of land. And it was deliberately called that partly to be provocative but also uh, to be evocative uh, in terms of the seriousness of land grabbing and its impact on human rights and on the environment globally. And I'm delighted to see so many people here and I'm delighted that you could uh, join us this evening, and I'm very honoured indeed to welcome and introduce our three speakers. Fred Pierce is an author and journalist, and he's been an environment consultant for New Scientist magazine since 1992, and he's reported from some 67 countries. I didn't count all of them. <laughs> I, I did. There's about 67, yeah. <laughs> Um, and Fred writes regularly for various newspapers and publications, including The Guardian, and he won a Lifetime Achievement Award for his journalism from the Association of British Science Writers in 2011, and he was voted the UK Environment Journalist of the Year in 2001. And his recent books include The Land Grabbers, People Quake, The Climate Files, uh, this one, which I, the title is very intriguing, Confessions of an Eco-Sinner, and When the Rivers Run Dry, and Fred's books have been translated into 20 languages. And I'm very pleased to tell you that copies of The Land Grabbers, which was published by uh, Peoples of Hackney, which is an independent bookseller, uh, are available for sale outside this theatre. And if you ask Fred nicely, I'm sure he'll be uh, very happy to sign a copy for you. Our second guest is Megan McInnes, who heads Global Witnesses' land campaign. And she has, for over a decade... Uh, worked on and has experience on working on issues related to the governance of land and natural resources in Southeast Asia. And she lived in Cambodia for seven years, working with local and international organizations on land and natural resource policy and dispute issues related to those. And she's published extensively and has been a board member of uh, local Cambodian organizations. Our third guest is Dr. Subir Sinha from the Department of Development Studies at SOAS, and he lectures and writes on the history of international development and on poor people's movements in India, especially around the question of natural resources and land and poverty. And his recent essays are about the transnational fish workers' movement and agendas of justice arising from poor people's movements, as well as the relationship between civil society and the poor in the context of contemporary capitalism and democracy. He's also looking at the forms of politics and political subjectivity of those who've been displaced by ongoing forms of primitive accumulation in India. We're delighted to welcome all three speakers this evening. Our speakers will each give a talk for about 15 minutes, and there'll be, uh, after their presentations, time for your questions. And Fred will be speaking first, providing a global overview of land grabbing and its consequences. And he'll be followed by Megan, who will speak both about rights violations from the perspective of a campaigning organization uh, and organizations that are challenging land grabbing at both uh, global and local levels. And Dr. Sinha will partly respond to the two presentations and draw out some broader issues and will bring out some broader theoretical points arising from his own work about land grabs from an academic and an historical perspective. And we aim to finish by 8 o'clock. And there's a reception afterwards, to which uh, you're very welcome. The event and the question and answer session that follows is recorded and sh should be available uh, on podcast, uh, assuming the technology works, uh, in a few days.
Please, can I also ask you to turn your mobile phones to silent? And if you want to comment on the event using Twitter, the suggested hashtag is uh, LSE Land. And this is also displayed on the screen. So may I ask you to extend your welcome to all of our speakers, and I'd like to invite Fred to start off. That's how it works. Okay, thank you. Um, that is, uh, that's the cover of my book. That's the book that will be on sale outside. No pressure, but uh, it's, it's there. It's a global study of land grabbing, um, which I published in the spring of last year. Um, it's a kind of journey around the world. Um, it's a, I'm a journalist, so a lot of it's, it's, it's journalistic in some ways, in quite a lot of ways. I'm going to places and talking to the people there. I'm talking to people in their boardrooms the land grabbers, I'm talking to people whose land is being taken uh, from beneath them, I'm hopefully talking to the sort of functionaries in the middle to get a sense of what they think is going on. So it's a, it's a journalistic journey which took me to a number of different countries around the world and most of those will uh, turn up at some point in the presentation. Um, this guy may be the world's top land grabber. I wouldn't guarantee it, but he would certainly like to be. His name is Sai Ramakrishna Karaturi. He's an engineer from Bangalore. He grows a tenth of the world's traded roses. So on Valentine's Day next week, you may well land up buying one of his roses, or indeed receiving one. Um, and he does that in greenhouses. It doesn't take a huge amount of land, though it's fairly resource-intensive activity. But now he's moving into mainstream agriculture. He's moving out of the greenhouses into the fields. And he wants, he says, a million hectares of land under his plows in Africa within the next few years. Um, here's some. Just a soggy field, really. It doesn't look much, but it's actually very close to the headwaters of the River Nile, um, one of the tributaries runs through those trees at the back. So it's nicely watered land, rather handy land, albeit in a rather obscure corner of Ethiopia. This is his first part of his first 100,000 hectares of soil. The rent is, you might think it might be quite a lot, the rent is £200 a day for the whole 100,000 hectares. Yet another 200,000 hectares is promised. He hopes to have that soon. So if you think about Luxembourg... And a bit more, that's how much land he is anticipating having for not much more than the price of, I guess, renting a nice apartment in central London. This kind of land is remarkably cheap. And land grabbers like him are gobbling up the wide open spaces across Africa and elsewhere, probably more than half of what we would term land grabbed land, and I'll talk a little bit about what that really means in practice, is in Africa. Chinese entrepreneurs and Gulf oil sheikhs and governments worried about food security, they're all buying. Oxfam estimates that they've taken 220 million hectares in the past decade. I wouldn't hold them to that figure, but it's a decent estimate. Um, that's an area the size of Britain, France, Germany, Spain, Italy, and the Benelux, Benelux countries all put together. Huge amount of land, all in, a, in the name, so they say, of feeding the world. Problem is, the land is being taken from some of the world's poorest 
and hungriest people, the rural inhabitants of Africa. And they need that land, their land, to stay fed. But their power to prevent their governments selling their land, leasing their land from beneath them, is very, very small. So there are people like Omot here, who I met in Ethiopia just down the road from the, uh, the soggy field that I showed you a moment ago. His land is being taken by a company called Saudi Star, owned by a man called Mohammed Alamudi, who's Saudi Arabia's second richest man and was a buddy and campaign financier for the Ethiopian prime minister who died just a few months ago. Now, you might think that his control of that land has something to do with his, uh, his friendship of Ethiopia's uh, former prime minister. Well, they may deny it or not, but um, I think there's a link. But for Omot, it doesn't make much difference who's got this land. He hasn't. We used to sell honey, he told me, sitting in the forest clearing there, which was his land, or had been his land. We used to sell honey, but two years ago the company began chopping down our forest and the bees went away. We used to hunt. But after the farm came, the wild animals disappeared. Now, he told me, we only have fish. But the company is digging a canal right by his hut. That's where it is. Uh, the clearing that we were meeting in is just literally behind those trees on the left. And that canal will drain the nearby wetland. So the fish will soon be gone. Soon Omot won't even be able to fish. Here's a question. Does it make sense to trash his life and that of his family here and ultimately hundreds of millions of other hunters and farmers and herders around the world in the name of feeding the world's poor? Or, if you want to dress that up in academic abstract nouns, can food security and justice go together in a resource-constrained world? I think that's the question that we're facing. Is this the right way to do development? Is this the right way to feed the world by taking poor rural people, taking their land from them? But how does this happen? The land grab, the modern land grab, well, we, you know, there are traditions of imperial land grabs and so on, but the modern post-imperial land grab began in 2008 after the soaring price of food around the world. Well, it sent shockwaves around the world. Um, It'll get another boost from the new price spike being triggered by the U.S. drought last summer, poor Asian monsoon last summer. Prices are on the rise again. They're, in a, in a, they're going up and down with great speed at the minute um, for reasons that we'll come to. But everybody's getting worried about world food supplies. And people are thinking about making money out of that. Food rights are erupting as prices rise. This is Argentina. Governments fall. A lot of the people demonstrating in Egypt and Tunisia last or a couple of years ago during the Arab Spring were protesting initially about food prices as much as bad government. Governments know that when food prices go up, things can get a bit sticky for them. Major food importing nations have been getting worried about their food security. They've been scouring the world for cheap land to grow crops to secure their future food supply. Saudi Arabia, South Korea, China, and so on, these countries are all looking around the world for other people's land to secure their food supplies. And speculators are moving in, and agribusiness firms are moving in to take advantage. They can see profits here. So this is George Soros, 
one of the world's more famous investors, I guess, who said a couple of years ago, I am convinced farmland is going to be one of the best investments of our time. And he's been buying a lot of land himself. And other investors, they are a bit of a sheep in a flock. They, if George Soros says that's the thing to do. A lot of other people have been following what he says. So I found British land grabbers in 20 African countries. The city of London is arguably the biggest financial centre for land grabbers anywhere in the world. And a lot of British corporations are involved too. So Associated British Foods acquired 120,000 hectares of sugar plantations in six African countries. One of them was in Mali and they pulled out a bit smartish a few months ago, but they're still buying. A guy called General Sir Redmond Watt, who commanded the British Land Forces until 2008, organised the Queen Mother's funeral, is, or was until very recently, chairing a company with options on more than 200,000 hectares of bush in the West African country of Guinea. All sorts of odd people getting involved. I mean, he was obviously, you know, he's not a, he's not a farmer. He was there to provide a bit of kudos for the, uh, for the scheme which persuaded the Guinea government to hand over that land. Whatever, whether that was good business for the Guinea government, I don't know. But one village was persuaded to sell all its land, including a large area of pasture land around the village, for three pounds. Uh, good land as well. That's not exactly the land there, but that's land nearby. Good, dark, earth, very uh, fertile land. Why, we might ask, are African governments allowing, indeed encouraging this? Corruption may sometimes be an issue. But they also, I think, believe that almost any foreign investment must be good. They feel guilty of their own past failure over the last 40 or so years to invest in their own agriculture. They've been investing in urban things and airports and, you know, urban infrastructure. Um, and they now feel guilty about not investing in agriculture. But they don't discriminate very often between good investment and bad, get-rich-quick Speculation. So if you put that mindset together with corruption, you have a, a potential problem. Now, a lot of it's in Africa, but it's not all in Africa. Brazilian ranchers, not content with trashing the Amazon, are moving into Paraguay. This is a shot I took from the air over the Chaco forest region of Paraguay. These blocks of cleared forest, each covers one square kilometre separated, as you can see, by thin strips of trees. Um, out there are some of the last uncontacted tribes on Earth, living now within, literally within the sound of the land grabbers' bulldozers. And that, all those <coughs> clearings were done in the last three years. Amazing scale at which people are moving in. And those clearances are for cattle ranchers, Brazilian cattle ranchers who are moving over the border. Um, not good news for the local people. Now, it's not all bad, I have to say. A British palm oil company I met in Liberia was reviving an abandoned plantation, so perhaps not taking land from anybody who was farming it. Um, and they were offering to buy produce from local smallholders so that you could make the case that they were having a good, a good effect on the local communities. We'll see, but it wasn't bad. And these kids are at the school that the company built. They didn't have a school before, now they do. So good things can happen if companies are willing to invest for the long term and invest in the communities. And I would call that land grabbers or not good investment. But from what I saw, 
too much, most of the land grabbing, most of the foreign investment in land, if you want to use the language of the grabbers themselves, is bad news for the locals who give up their land and get usually next to nothing in return, don't even usually get jobs. And whatever the economics, and there are some arguments about the economics of what's going to happen in the long term, whether you need this foreign investment and the downside is worth it because of the upside, people will argue about that. I take the view that it's not going to do many people much good. But whatever the economics, I think there's a simple matter of justice here. These people's land rights are being trampled on. They don't have any say in whether their land is taken from them because the control of the land is invested in the government and the government makes the choices. It's a matter of justice, I think. And the scale at which this is happening is staggering. When the new state of South Sudan, you may remember, um, raised the flag about a year ago, a year or so ago, at that point a tenth of its territory had already been leased to foreign countries. A tenth of the whole country, even before the state was formally set up. It was all done by the interim government. And Liberia, recovering from a long civil war, has given up approaching three quarters of its entire land area to grow rubber and plant palm oil and mine iron ore and log forests. Scale is just staggering. Now that is a map, you see the yellow area here of the savannah grasslands, I should, I should say, of, uh, of Africa, between the deserts and the rainforests of the centre. The World Bank has identified 4 million square kilometres of these savannah grasslands. Um, geographers will know there was the Guinea Savannah Zone. And the bank calls them the world's last large reserve of underused land. Underused. The trouble is that this underused land is home to something like half a billion Africans, peasant farmers, hunters, <coughs> herders. They're among the world's poorest people and they badly need economic development. That's for sure. The status quo, I don't think, should be an option. But should it be done this way, with foreign investors moving in with big kit, taking over their land, turning them from landowners into land labourers. I suggest not. Um, all sorts of companies involved. One British company, Sun Biofuels, breezed into Tanzania and Mozambique. It planted a weed, well, an African weed called Jatropha, um, which is being touted or has been touted as a biofuel. report from Goldman Sachs said it would be a surefire money, skip, money spinner, turning it into biodiesel. Uh, just over, well, a couple of years ago now, Sun Biofuels persuaded the overseas development minister, Stephen O'Brien, to go out to Mozambique uh, and promote this. And O'Brien said, one cannot fail to be impressed, he said. I have every hope that this project, this Jatropha project, will be a shining example for countries around the world as to how to produce green energy. Ticking all the boxes, foreign investment, green energy, uh, everything was going well. Actually, the joke, Jatropha crop hasn't delivered... Four months after O'Brien went out, Sun Biofuels went out of business, leaving behind abandoned land and angry locals. And as ever, when the investors move on, the investors are usually quite happy. They've got money in lots of different pots. They don't all succeed. But while they're happy enough, the locals are left to clean up the mess. And in fact, this land is now um, in a state of 
uh, hibernation, really, while people look for some new owners. Certainly the locals haven't been able to go back to it. Some of the, some of the land grabbers are con artists, there's no doubt about that. I met several of them in London. There's a British start-up company growing Jatropha on land that it somehow wangled from the government of the West African state of Togo. But in April last year, a British court shut the company down, quotes, on public interest grounds because it had a clear intention of to mislead would-be investors. Now, that was a bad thing, so it was shut down. Nobody mentioned the people of Togo and how they might have been uh, misled. Uh, but at any rate, if the investors weren't getting the return they were expected, then the regulators moved in. Um, a lot of kind of shady business of that sort going on. Even many of the land grabbers don't seriously believe that their mechanised prairie agriculture will deliver the development that they promise. Um, James Siggs, a British farmer, in 2008 joined with a Canadian venture capitalist to create, quote, US-style large-scale agriculture on 100,000 hectares that they'd acquired in the Democratic Republic of the Congo um, with this kind of kit. The company says it'll be a breakthrough for that country's development and for feeding Africa. If you look at its website, it's full of this kind of stuff, uh, full of pictures of combine harvesters charging across Africa, turning Africa into a version of the American prairie lands. But a couple of years later, 2010, Siggs, the British farmer, admitted at a conference that, quote, industrial-scale farming displaces and alienates people, creates few jobs and causes social disruption. And I think that sums up quite succinctly the problem. Industrial-scale farming does indeed displace and alienate people. It does create very few jobs, and it certainly causes social disruption. Some say peasant farmers are doomed. Only big farming with big kit can feed the world, and perhaps some of you here uh, think that's the case. Certainly um, a lot of people around the world take the view that smallholder farming has to be on the way out. But I disagree. Investing in small farms, particularly in Africa, remains the key to African development and to feeding Africa. Rather than taking their farms and fencing off their land, as here at a project in Kenya, and packing the people off to cities because there's no work anymore, Africa's future should lie in helping its smallholders to find new crops, new markets, and new confidence. And there are plenty of places where this is happening. There are, you know, I'm not talking just saying what's happening now is wrong. There are lots of places where backing smallholders is doing good things. Um, small farms still produce about 60% of the world's food. And they're often rather good at it, these small farmers, even in Africa. They need help. I met lots of people, as I say, making great progress. Smallholders selling fruit in Kenya to Gulf states. They were exporting their fruit crops. Green vegetables coming to British supermarkets. If you go into Waitrose or something and you pick up those, those shrink wrap packs of green vegetables, green beans from Kenya, those are often coming from smallholder farmers making a better living than they've ever made in their lives. So I think you should buy those green beans and not worry too much about the air miles involved in bringing them here. Let's, you know, let's trade with Africa. Um, let's make some of these things work. Um, 
Still, you may think, well, actually, big business is the way it's going to go. But I read a World Bank report, um, a report that in places read like a manifesto has been, and has been used as a manifesto for land grabbing in Africa. It included that map that I showed you earlier. But halfway through this report admitted, quote, there is little evidence that the large-scale farming model is either necessary or even particularly promising for Africa. So even the, even the banking people, the experts at the World Bank, really have serious doubts about whether uh, big agribusiness is the way forward for Africa. In other words, land grabbing can feed the bottom line for greedy companies, but I don't think it will feed Africans, and I don't think... The experts at the World Bank think so either. We need, I believe, less big kit, fewer big fences like these, and more smallholders in more fields. People like these guys in Liberia, just working the land. Invest in them, give them some more fertilizers so they can get higher yields. Most African farmers of this sort could triple their yields if they were given a bit of fertilizer. They don't need huge investment of tractors. They don't need GM crops. They don't need anything much except a bit of basic fertilizer. We still need this big business in order to feed the world? Okay. Um, just remember one thing. The world already actually grows enough food to feed 10 billion people. The planet has 7 billion people now. We grow enough, but we waste so much of it. There was a report out a couple of weeks ago about the wastage of food. Just think about that. This is not a resource constraint. It's not as if the planet really cannot produce as much food or we have to throw big business at agriculture in order to do it. We already do, we already grow enough food. Um, a billion people go hungry, not because there is no food, but because we cannot distribute that food equitably. We cannot share it out. And we cannot often use the land properly, so we use a lot of the land to grow cotton or biofuels or something. Um, whenever there's a famine in some dried-up, godforsaken, drought-hit corner, of Africa, Sudan or Ethiopia or wherever it's been in recent decades, almost always, in fact I would say always, there's been food in the warehouses of that country, but there's somebody sitting on that food waiting for the price rise to sell it. Absolute shortages of food are not the issue. These are issues fundamentally about equity, about sharing out the land, about allowing people to make good use of their land and not taking it from them. Making hungry people poor, taking their land away, doesn't seem to me like a good place to start in feeding the world. One last image. Sugar plantation barrier here in Cambodia. Cambodian rice farmers are being having their land taken from them, their grazing pastures taken from them by bigwig senators and others who want to grow sugar instead to sell to Europe. On this particular large project, land taken from villages that I visited, Tate and Lyle is the brand name. Uh, so the sugar will probably land up in your packet of sugar somewhere. And this is sugar from land taken from smallholders. In a country like Cambodia, where um, you know they, only a generation or so ago, uh, they the time of Pol Pot, they lost their land and many people lost their lives. And now something similar is happening again. Um, so this, like the cotton fields and the rubber plantations and the palm oil estates and mile after mile 
of biofuels, in my view, has nothing to do with feeding the world and everything to do with profit-taking. The land grabbers, in my view, put very simply, are usually a menace. Um, they're as voracious and venal, perhaps, as the city bankers who pay for their imperial ventures. I'll stop there. That's, sorry, that's the cover again. And that's back to the start. Thank you very much, Fred. Megan. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Shaitan, and thank you, Fred, for a very thorough introduction to what's going on around the land-grabbing issue, the global theft of land across the world. It's incredibly important to have some faces to put to the actors and the people involved in this because we can get bogged down in discussions around price, price rises and falling and global drivers of this land grab and this increasing commercial pressure on land. But having some reminder that this is actually just about people and about decisions that they're making fundamentally is really important in these kind of discussions. So just a little, a few words about Global Witness before I start. We are an international NGO based in London that campaigns to ensure that natural resources in developing countries are not used to fuel conflict, corruption, environmental degradation or human rights violations. Within Global Witness, we've been looking at this land-grabbing issue for about two years now, focusing specifically on the problems associated with the lack of transparency and lack of accountability in decisions being made by governments and companies about who gets to use what land and for what purpose, and how, this, how the wrong decisions being made can have devastating impacts for local communities and also for the environment. There were two things I wanted to touch on this evening, as Shaitan said. The first, thing, the first issue relates to some of the negative impacts created by this global land grab, focusing specifically on human rights violations, the environmental and the governance impacts. And then secondly, just give an overview around some of the types of actions, the campaigning, the protests, the legal and policy and advocacy work that's being done to try and address these issues from both the local and the international perspectives. So while, while as Fred explained, there are many different drivers, problems, stakeholder groups and contexts relating to land grabbing across the world, human rights should be seen as universal and therefore they provide a really important tool for understanding and comparing the, the trends, the common issues and the specific problems that are taking place across the world in different situations and what opportunities we might have, therefore, for changing that. At a detailed level, Global Witness analyzes the violations of human rights in two ways. Firstly, from the economic, social and cultural rights and then from civil and political rights frameworks. In their most direct way, land grabbing is violating really fundamental economic, social and cultural rights. For example, the right to adequate housing. Forced evictions completely remove that. The right to food, as Fred has said, losing access to your land, losing access to the forests that you depend on, losing access to water, all impact on your ability to, food, to feed yourself and your family, your right to food. There are also rights associated with religious belief and cultural belief. And in many countries, we see that land being grabbed and forests being grabbed isn't just productive land. It's land which is incredibly important for religious and cultural and spiritual uh, values within the community, which can have a devastating impact from a cultural and religious perspective. And then within this framework, there are also specific groups which have specific additional rights, such as indigenous people, 
and their right for, to have free, prior and informed consent with relation to whether or not projects like this and investments should be going ahead at all. Groups like Global Witness are looking at these rights for specific groups, such as the right to free, prior and informed consent, and thinking about how these rights could be extended or made basic principles for other communities whose livelihoods are being impacted by these large-scale land investment projects. However, when it comes to thinking about civil and political rights, the relationship's a bit more complicated. When communities are fighting to get their land back, to get justice, or even just basic compensation, then often their rights to freedom of expression, assembly, and association, for example, are being ignored or are being violated. They are, for example, prevented from travelling around, prevented from talking to each other, prevented from talking to other communities who may be impacted by the same company. They're prevented from joining protests, starting demonstrations. They are detained, arrested, unlawfully charged, sometimes face the most horrific violence as a result of employees of the company or armed forces of the government who have been um, employed by the company. One of the most horrific recent examples of this was a 14-year-old girl who was shot dead during a protest against a rubber plantation in Cambodia. She was shot by armed forces who the company had hired to protect them against the protesting, the local community who were protesting. And for those of you who know Cambodia well, you won't be surprised to hear that her death has never been investigated, no one has ever been charged, and the the family has never ever been given any explanation about why she died. Whilst the framing of land grabbing is often analysed from a human rights perspective, this isn't the only problem, and I want to just talk a little bit about the environmental and the governance problems also uh, taking place on the ground. In terms of environmental problems, there are a large number which are associated with these unregulated and badly conceived large-scale land acquisitions and investments. Illegal logging is one of them. We're seeing in our research that huge swathes of vitally important evergreen and semi-evergreen forests are being cleared as a result of these large-scale land investments. Sometimes companies actually incorporate the revenues generated from from uh, from this forest clearance as the way in which they're going to finance these projects. This, in some countries, is completely illegal, where these kind of large-scale land investments should only be allocated on degraded land, not on areas of land where there are standing valuable forests. Um, The other problem we see is that uh, in some areas, and we we see this specifically in the Mekong, um, these large-scale land investments are actually being used as a cover for the laundering of luxury timber from the surrounding area, so the timber gets illegally cleared from the surrounding area and then it's taken through and certified through the concession and becoming legal, therefore. Fred's already talked about other impacts related to the environment, such as the loss of access to water. And this isn't just drinking water, but this is water for irrigation, this is water for fishing, this is other water that communities' livelihoods are dependent on. So we can see that there's a strong relationship, therefore, between the socioeconomic impacts and the environmental impacts when it comes to the kind of problems communities are facing on the ground. Then there's a relationship between this global theft of land and governance failures. A number of studies have already revealed that certain investor types are deliberately targeting high-risk countries because of the potential high financial returns. Fred's mentioned a few of them, DRC, South Sudan. These are countries where where companies are deliberately targeting these countries because they know that these countries do not have adequate rule of law, there's high levels of corruption, 
there's elite capture, there's a shadow state, there's a lack of transparency. Some investors see these as high risks and therefore countries to be avoided, but there are unfortunately a group of investors who see these as countries that they want to invest in because they, despite the risk, they can get potentially very significant returns on those risks, on these investments. And it is in these countries where local people are particularly vulnerable to land grabbing because it's the usual transparency, accountability and essentially democratic functions of the state which should protect them from land grabbing which are not working. Or if they are working, these mechanisms are being corrupted to protect the interests of business and the political elite rather than the, rather than the interests of the country's citizens. So the problem for the communities in these countries are twofold. Not only do they lose access to the land, they lose the land, they lose the resources that they depend on, but they also, when they try and get uh, submit complaints through formal or informal procedures, when they try to protest, when they try to get justice or compensation, these attempts through formal channels are also being, prevent, being blocked by these similar failures of these accountability mechanisms due to these broader governance issues. So from Global Witness's perspective, these three types of problems associated with land grabs, the human rights, the environment and the governance problems, are interacting and mutually reinforcing in an, in an increasingly alarming way for local communities. In the run-up to the Rio Plus 20 conference last June 2012, we did some research to better understand the impacts of these increasing competition for access to land and natural resources and we discovered a really, really concerning trend in which it's the victims of land grabs themselves who are on the front line of this battle, to the first battle for these resources, and they are paying the heaviest price. Since the beginning of 2002, more than 700 people have been killed while defending their rights to land and natural resources. That's more than one every single week. And since 2011, the toll was more than 100, which has almost doubled in the last three years. So one question I'd like to put to you, it's probably my only chance to do this, is if these communities themselves are putting their lives on the line to protect their land, then what is it that we as an international community, as academics, as scholars, as campaigners, as NGO people, and all the other different stakeholders in the room, what can we do to help support these communities? Which takes me on to the second part of what I want to talk about, which is just to give a brief overview of the types of activism and actions which are taking place around the world to address the global theft of land and how do they fit together. Now, there's a whole range of diverse actions and activities. I'm not going to even try to describe them all. I'm just going to give a taster of three different levels of categories to start off the discussion. So firstly, there is land dispute casework where communities are fighting on a daily basis to get their land back. We saw many of these people in Fred's presentation. Sometimes they're doing this on their own, sometimes they're doing it as part of national advocacy movements and with, civil, with a broader civil society network. They're looking at judicial and non-judicial formal processes for submitting complaints. They're also involved in protests and direct action. Sometimes this is about getting government attention to their case. Sometimes it's literally standing in front of the bulldozers to stop them clearing another field. There are sometimes international um, actions to support these cases, but this can only happen if you either have um, an international company with an international reputation to protect who may respond to a naming and shaming type of expose or if you have the legal opportunity, as uh, Fred was talking about, where you have uh, international jurisdictions over that company. 
Secondly, there's a lot of work being done in developing countries with governments to try and change the way in which they're allocating land to companies and the way that they're disregarding, light, uh, disregarding human rights and acting in secrecy. There th there's a whole range of ways that this is happening. Um, I'm just going to mention three. One is, which, one is looking at targeting the actual modes and policies of agricultural production or investments in the country. For example, trying to encourage governments to prioritise increasing investments in smallholders rather than prioritising large-scale large agribusiness companies. As Fred said, this is trying to change this mindset of governments that large, large and bigger and better and more industrialised is the only way to feed the future. There's also efforts thinking about how land is allocated from a procedural and process-based perspective. Again, this is working with governments to make sure that they can undertake participatory land planning, land use planning and land mapping, in a way which recognises informal and customary land rights as well as formal, formal tenure, and doing this before they start allocating such land to companies, so that you actually know, so that the government knows how much land, if anything, it has available to, uh, to give to uh, companies on, and on what terms. There's also a lot of work looking at strengthening and both strengthening and enforcing the legal frameworks and policies in specific countries. Thirdly, there's a whole, the, the third area of work is looking at the international level, looking at policies, looking at institutions, looking at regulatory frameworks, looking at different initiatives. Now, whereas the country-level dispute, ongoing dispute work on a case-by-case -case basis and the national-level work is ongoing, there's actually some very important opportunities in 2012 and 2013 at the international level, which are relatively unique in terms of focusing international attention on these issues. So it's actually great to have this discussion here tonight as a chance to share more information about this. Some of these uh, issues, some of these processes are happening under the auspices of the UN Committee on World Food Security, the CFS, which is an inter intergovernmental body based within the FAO in Rome, this inter intergovernmental body is actually very unique because it has civil society sitting on the committee as a member that's able to speak and influence decisions in the same, at the same level as government, agent, government representatives do. Likewise, the uh, private sector also sits on this committee as well. So there's a huge chance there to have a much more open discussion at this international level than some of the other intergovernmental agencies do. There is a strong presence of social movements, such as Livia Campesina, on the civil society mechanism, which is the body that coordinates civil society representation at the CFS. Sorry, there's a lot of acronyms. Um, in October 2012, the CFS endorsed the voluntary guidelines on the governance of tenure. I'm going to have to, governance of tenure of land, forests, and fisheries in the context of national food security. We call them the voluntary guidelines for short, which are the first time we've had an international consensus reached about the interaction between human rights and natural resource governance tenure. So whilst they may not be binding, they're an incredibly important standard that's now been set at the international level to guide us in terms of the future of how these issues should be addressed. Following on from the endorsement of the voluntary guidelines, the CFS is now starting a two-year consultation process on principles for responsible agricultural investments, which give more detail to one particular chapter in the voluntary guidelines. So these consultations are bringing international attention around questions such as, what is responsible investment? We need to recognise that, as Fred said, 
the major investments in agriculture at the moment are being done by, by smallholders. They are feeding, they're providing 60% of the world's food. So when we talk about responsible agricultural investments, we need to talk about what kind of investments they need and how can we support them and how can we regulate large-scale and large-scale investments by big companies if that's what is still needed as well. In addition to the work, in addition to and in complement to the work of the CFS is our discussions internationally around how to improve transparency in large-scale land investments. This is looking at the way in which decisions being made in secret and key information being withheld from public disclosure is a driver of the, the global theft of land and what can be done to make this information in the public domain and in a way which communities themselves can access and use. One focus of this is within the forthcoming G8 meeting. David Cameron, in his speech in Davos a couple of weeks ago, talked about the UK's government's priorities for the G8, including a focus on transparency with large-scale land investments in particular being drawn out as one, one sector they want to focus on. There's, other international, there's, a, there's a whole range of other international initiatives around the open contracting, open data, open government partnerships where the discussion of greater disclosure of public information is, is, is being looked into as an, an, an avenue for disclosure on these kind of investments. And then, of course, campaigning groups like Global Witness always refer to the UN human rights frameworks as providing obligations, guidance, and reporting mechanisms for the monitoring of human rights violations relating to land grabbing. But I'm sure that there are many other experts in the room who have more knowledge on this. So I'm going to stop there. And thank you very much. And it's really great to be here this evening and very much look forward to the questions and discussions. Thank you very much, Nathan. And can I, can I invite Dr. Subir Sinha to give his uh, presentation? Thank you. Uh, thanks to Fred, Megan, and to Chetan, and of course to all of you. Um, as it turns out, I mostly agree with a lot of what they've said. So I'll basically pick on those points where either I don't so much agree or I feel there might be uh, you know, some uh, benefit in pushing some of the points that have been raised uh, and perhaps uh, widen the discussion, partly also to include South Asia in this, but also maybe to think about land grabs in a more broader sense, in a broader sense of the term. So for example, uh, Fred's book, which I had a chance to read very rapidly, actually, uh, and uh, for which I do apologize, but it did strike me that the uh, starting definition that he has for land grabs, uh, which basically in his work, and I think it's a definition which is very widely uh, used as well, is in terms of a large-scale land acquisition where primarily foreigners or outsiders are involved. And uh, clearly, if you look at the debate on uh, land grabs that has been going on for the last four or five years primarily, 2008 being mentioned as a kind of a cutting point between, uh, you know, in terms of determining the new kind of land grab, uh, whereas a lot of corporations have been massively involved as well as uh, foreign individuals have been involved, it seems to me that this is not the entire picture on land grabs. If you look at certain parts of the world, for example, Southeast Asia, it's not necessarily transnational capital, it's much more regional capital, primarily Chinese. Or if you look at the case of South Asia, and in that I include India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and uh, Sri Lanka, a lot of land grab has happened 
as a result of domestic capitalists. So in other words, it is not necessarily uh, the case that in all areas around the world, foreign direct investment is necessarily uh, the driving force. I think it is probably good to keep in mind that the picture on land grabs around the world is more varied. In certain places, uh, for example in Africa and perhaps also in Latin America, you have a much greater degree of uh, transnational flows of uh, quote-unquote investment which has resulted in these large-scale uh, transfers of control over land. Uh, secondly, this issue of large scale. Now, again, uh, you know, if you look at the kinds of figures and particularly the examples that Fred gives in his presentation and in his book, these are quite mind-boggling, uh, you know, amounts of land which are basically being trans, which are basically moving from the control and ownership of one group of people to primarily corporations. But land grabs are also small-scale, everyday and by and large unspectacular in terms of the fact that you do not necessarily have very large farms of this kind of thing, of the sort that uh, you know, we saw photographs of. And in fact, if you look at uh, the work of uh, scholars such as Mushtaq Khan for Bangladesh, they also talk about a lot of coercion in which there's collusion between local capitalists, local agents of the state, and so on, recalling basically the kind of point that Megan was making about governance uh, failures happening at the local level. So governance failures are not only affecting these very large transfers of land involving foreign direct investors, but on a mundane, everyday basis, it also involves relatively small transfers which aggregate to very large pictures, and I think there's a perhaps a need to think about this as a second category of land grabs, which has its own different kind of political dynamics and perhaps has, therefore, a whole range of uh, policy or other political options which may or may not be uh, identical to the ones that uh, you know, operate with respect to uh, those which are created by foreign direct investment. I'm also not entirely sure whether one can make or, in fact, what the productive uses might be of thinking about imperial and post-imperial land grabs. For example, if one considers many things which are uh, today supposed to characterize the so-called post-imperial land grabs, for example, the production of food or biofuels or other kinds of feed for export, then, of course, uh, you know, this, this, there seems to be a continuum, not only from kind of the hoary old days of classic colonialism, but in fact, in the, for much of the 20th century, uh, if you look at fruit corporations, United Fruit and Dole being you know, prime examples of that, but also a whole range of other food products, then it seems to me that this coercive uh, eviction of people from lands which could then be leased out or sold to private corporations in such a way that they have had such a stranglehold over the world food supply over the last 150 odd years has been a sort of uh, you know, feature not only of contemporary capitalism, but capitalism for the last 100 odd years. So I, I, I would like to hear more from Fred and perhaps from Megan and from you as to why one should make this distinction between uh, a, an imperial and a post-imperial kind of uh, you know, land grab. It, it seems to make something of an exception uh, you know, for, the, for the present, whereas I think it could be more fruitfully argued that there is something systemic about capitalism which is uh, connected with uh, you know, transfers of resources <coughs> such as you know, land uh, in terms of what we are talking about today. I think also another feature of the land grab debate has been that it is primarily agricultural land that we are talking about. And of course, uh, that is not trivial, primarily because of the fact that it has 
you know, it supports such a large percentage of the world's population, more than 60 or 70 percent in many countries, and also obviously because there are questions concerning rural poverty and food security and food availability. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to trivialize that. But if you look at uh, instances of uh, land grabs, particularly in uh, India and in Pakistan, there is also substantial land grabs happening with respect to urban land. For example, if you look at uh, the work of the Pakistani uh, urbanist uh, Arif Hassan, uh, he basically documents that a lot of urban land is basically being grabbed by so-called land mafias in Islamabad as well as in Karachi. And this is primarily because of the fact that these cities have expanded so rapidly that land which had little commercial value now becomes very, very valuable in terms of real estate. And of course, we see this uh, in the Indian case in a whole variety of different scenarios, uh, most spectacularly in the case of uh, a housing development uh, you know, uh, project called the Lavasa Valley Project, uh, the catchment area for which are basically uh, upper middle class and uh, very rich people in Bombay. Uh, this is a village constructed on a Swiss village model in a valley in the Western Ghat, which is done entirely without any kind of planning permission. And in fact, now that uh, the government of uh, India's Ministry for the Environment has declared that it is an illegal and they, that they would like to have it demolished, they basically want to pay token amounts of money as kind of back pay or reduced taxation for this sort of thing. Uh, if you look at certain infrastructure uh, projects in the uh, areas around Delhi, like, for example, the so-called De the, the Delhi-Agra Highway, uh, as well as the construction of the F1 racing track there, that basically seems to involve 43,000 hectares of land, which will affect somewhere, some, somewhere around 1,200 villages and effectively uh, 100,000 metric tons of food grain production will be affected by this. And I think it has a lot to do with the uh, desire not only of the government of the, st of the state of Delhi, but of the Indian government to think in terms of Delhi as a world city. And it seems to me that you can see relatively uh, sort of solid correspondence between global city ambitions and urban land grabs in city after city, whether it is Durban or Johannesburg or Rio de Janeiro and so on and so forth. So I think this is uh, particularly because Megan uh, raised the question of housing rights connected with the question of land grabs, it seems to me that perhaps a third category, not identical to the ones that have uh, been spoken about so far, uh, is the question of the urban land grab, and I think uh, it might be useful to bring that into the debate as well. Uh, fourth point that perhaps needs, uh, to my mind, a little bit more uh, consideration is whether there is a kind of continuum between land acquisition happening under transparent and entirely legal kinds of conditions on the one hand and the kind of land grabs that we are talking about. For example, a lot of land acquisition itself takes place under relatively coercive conditions or it takes place under conditions in which, uh, again, as Megan mentioned, uh, there is inf uh, insufficient information available to one of the parties in that particular transaction. And this brings to mind uh, research done by people, for example, in the outskirts of, of, of Calcutta, where developers bought land uh, from, effectively, farmers for uh, just a little bit more than what uh, agricultural land markets would have allowed that land to have been sold for, and then within weeks or months began selling those land, pieces of land for enormously higher 
by factors of three to four hundred percent, you know, the, the, uh, that land for housing development. Now, in that sort of a scenario, uh, there is both coercion as well as co- well, you know, uh, a lack of uh, adequate information that basically results in massive transfers of smallholders' land over to uh, real estate developers' land. And it seems to me that if you looked at uh, cities in, in, in South Asia, that would, that would be uh, something that you'd come across quite often. There's also the question of uh, you know, large amounts of government land, which is basically transferred on, or public land, which is basically transferred on uh, to private owners. So, for example, if you look at the campaigns of one of the movements in India which is engaged in this in a very creative and constructive way, a movement by the name of Ekta Parishad, uh, in their documents, they basically list scenarios in which plantation land, which had been given by governments, which are from their own, if you like, public lands, uh, for the purposes of plantations, even after that, those leases have in fact expired, those lands have not returned to the public, uh, to, you know, to public control, and in fact, con- continue informally, if you like. Uh, in many cases, common lands, uh, which have had a legal status of some sort, have also been, uh, you know, given over or taken over uh, by powerful players, very often with, uh, in collusion with the state. So again. Uh, the role of uh, the fact that you know we are talking about land grabs not only as lands that belong to one set of private or community ownership to uh, you know corporate or other kind of private ownership is another category. But here, I think it, what what one needs to think about is whether this also constitutes a certain kind of a land grab, because many of the demands for land reforms or for land rights take as a given the kind the amount of land which is available as public land. Now, uh, a further point, not so much of disagreement, but perhaps again thinking thinking it through, is the connection that both Fred and Megan made between smallholder agriculture and the question of food security. And of course, the World Bank, IFAD, uh, and the FAO have all been involved in pushing through a smallholder agenda of some sort, particularly IFAD, in the last decade or so. And I've had the chance in this uh, connection to uh, have conversation with colleagues from China and from Argentina and Brazil and South Africa on this. And what really struck me was the massive difference in terms of how a smallholder is defined across the world. So, for example, in the case of China, uh, where the average holding size is 0.8 uh, hectares, in the case of India, it is 1.2, whereas a smallholder in Brazil is uh, basically someone who has 40 uh, hectares of land or below. So where, what kind of a smallholder are we talking about here? And if one looks at the capacity of smallholder agriculture in countries like Brazil or in Argentina, where the sort of ratio between the population and the land is of one variety, as compared to that of India or China, we are likely to get very different kinds of outcomes in terms of food production. Though I, I must uh, add that I do agree with the fact that food production is not a problem. There is, in fact surplus food. But if one was to make an argument that smallholder agriculture uh, is a good way to go for food production, it seems to me that the massive and very wild variation in land holdings across the world, particularly separating out Asia from Africa and Latin America, uh, I think that's, that's a quite dramatic difference between the two. So I can't, I can't see how one could make a statement uh, necessarily equating small holdings without having differentiated it uh, with, uh, with, with food security. And again, 
if one looks at major f- food grains in the world, for example, if one looks at rice in China and rice and wheat in India, what you would find is that there is a decline in the productivity over time of rice and wheat from uh, the two largest rice and wheat uh, consuming countries in the world. And one way to basically have, there are several ways in which one could address this problem. One, for example, if one looks at the Indian environmentalist Vandana Shiva, she would like us to go, uh, go towards some kind of an organic farming model. We don't know how much that might succeed in terms of meeting urban, uh, you know, overall food, uh, food demands. But no, in, under normal circumstances, what this effectively has resulted in is both China and India have very high levels of chemical inputs into agriculture, including in smallholder agriculture. And as a result of that, what you have is extremely high levels of toxicity in food in India. If you look at, for example, the state of Punjab, where in recent reports have suggested that one out of three deaths is from cancer, and the level of toxicity in food in India is the highest in the world, it seems to me that one has to think about what kind of agriculture will smallholders have to be engaged in so that they are both able to produce food which can feed themselves and uh, the rest of the population while simultaneously uh, avoiding some of the most grave uh, side effects that such food production might have. Um, in terms of the uh, kinds of politics that you know, we, one uh, associates with the question of land grabs, and I think rightly, a lot of emphasis has been placed on the kinds of advocacy, civil society mobilizations, and social movements about which we have heard uh, to some extent or, you know, from our previous speakers. But one has to consider that a political field, if you like, or any kind of national or regional politics involves a whole variety of different players, and they are in contention with each other, not only about land, but about how, she, how it should be used, and so on. And in most of these situations, smallholders, or people who are likely to lose land, quite likely they've lost land in the first place, because compared to other players on that particular field, they are at a relative disadvantage in terms of how much political power they have and how much political power they can mobilize. Take, for example, India's middle classes. Uh, they have been featured in The Economist, and they're featured as one of the drivers of Indian growth. And particularly think about their uh, fascination with the so-called Gujarat model of growth. Uh, this is the growth state in which uh, there is rapid economic growth, uh, this is considered to be, by many middle-class Indians, the model for the rest of the country to follow. And it has involved, among other things, very large-scale transfers of public land at throwaway prices to corporate uh, houses, for example, the Adani Group and so on. It has among the, among the worst environmental records. And of course, uh, as it is well known across the world, uh, it has had a, uh, a number of... Um, Invest, well, it has a reputation, let us say, for human rights violation, particularly with respect to minorities, and it has a very high level of farmer suicides. So in this particular brand of growth model, which is being favored, uh, I'm not too sure that the middle classes it, who are quite powerful and who will drive what kind of governments are chosen or to some extent what kind of development path has to be followed, are not necessarily that fussed about land grabs. And in fact, many of them perhaps see that 
as a necessary, inevitable, perhaps even regrettable, you know, path to take, but that there is an inevitability in terms of how they might accept this as a cost of progress. Uh, we also find that uh, you know, uh, the middle classes have an insatiable ap appetite for real estate. So, for example, if any of you watch NDTV uh, from India on uh, you know, your Sky or you know, Virgin uh, channels here, you will find that every half an hour they break for a real estate show where people will send in questions saying, I want a second or a third property in sector 104 of Noida or some other place in, uh, you know, uh, elsewhere as an investment. So for them, uh, it is not just agricultural land that they want to invest in, but more uh, profitable for them, they would like to invest in that property which has been created once agricultural land has already been transformed into something else. And I think what that suggests is that there is a large-scale change in land use going around. And if you look at particularly the case of Bangladesh, where, for example, a lot of agricultural land has been, transformed, uh, has been transferred for uh, shrimp cultivation and for shrimp aquaculture and, and for export, uh, that is perhaps even a better example in terms of looking at how land use has changed what it is that people are investing in. Uh, speaking about politics, I entirely agree with uh, you know the kind of suggestions that Megan uh, you know raised in terms of some of the uh, levels and planes at which uh, you know people might uh, you know get politically involved. Uh, I think, uh, in addition, to one way to think about these, given the fact, as I suggested, that people who are the victims of land grabs are primarily people who lack political power as compared to others who are in interested in land, that there are there have to be uh, countervailing forms of political power. Now, let me first suggest to you uh, one way in which, through the normal workings of politics, you might have the resolution of certain kinds of uh, land grabs or uh, forcible acquisition of land. And what I mean by that is that where political party competition happens to be very intense and where there is no political party that can count on there being a constituency that will put them back in power, you are likely to find political parties of a mainstream variety getting quite involved in the question of land grabs, as is the case in various state elections in India in the, in the recent past, where political parties that wanted the support of small smallholders who either had lost land or were going to lose land made that into a political point. Second, uh, issues of tradition, culture, ethnicity, and nationalism, while they have been used, and most successfully in the case of the Kondz of Urisa in response to the Vedanta uh, you know, uh, factories there, it seems to me that, and let me be controversial here, it seems to me that these have a returning rate of return in terms, uh, a, a diminishing rate of return in terms of political traction. It seems to me that far more important and perhaps uh, ways of doing politics which are going to have far greater currency in this regard are going to be made in a language which is not anymore about specific belonging to land, but is going to be more about much more general kinds of things, like, for example, constitutional provisions. In the Indian case, uh, scheduled tribes, tribes have a constitutional provision which basically makes it difficult to alienate land from them, and one sees that there is an increasing use of that kind of thing. Food security, again, nothing to do with ethnicity as such, but is usually posed as a national or a, gl or, or a global problem. 
uh, climate change, once again going away from the specific and the local and the ethnic to really a planetary scale of politics. Uh, issues concerning ownership and access, whether these two are in fact the same thing or whether one could think about the politics of uh, the ownership of land versus the access to land. And finally, whether politics has to uh, think in terms <coughs> of moving private land or state land not into another kind of private ownership, for example, via land reforms, uh, and think more in terms of the creation of new kinds of commons or of common property in land and in other natural resources. Thanks very much. Thank you very much to uh, all of our speakers for a very diverse and powerful set of presentations. And uh, Dr. Sinha raised a number of points which I took to be complementary to uh, the presentations from Fred and Megan. But I just want to give an opportunity to Fred and Megan to respond if they wish to to any of the points raised, or we could, or you could address them within the general discussion. I, I think we should go out to the audience. Actually. Okay. All right. So we have time for questions, and you can direct your questions to. Uh, any particular speaker or to the panel generally. And I will take questions in groups of three. And I really want to maximize the number of questions. I know we've got uh, po possibly only about uh, 15 minutes. Uh, so let's try and get as many questions as possible. Please wait for the LSE stewards who, are, uh, who have the microphones there to come to you. Uh, if you could raise your hands to indicate that you want to ask a question. And um, uh, I know it, it's a bit of a delay to, to wait for the person with the microphone. But if uh, you could... Just please be patient. Thank you. Just a very simple procedural point. Is, is there, before we all get up and go away, is there anything, any collection of names? Or It's great to see such an audience on, a, on an issue like this. Uh, is that old school for this sort of meeting, or can it happen? Uh, I, if you I want, quite, people, quite understand people your want question. to leave their name and their group or whatever they are. In, yeah, I mean, in I, terms I, of I, Megan's question, what, what can we do yeah. about this? Can I just say, uh, the, the, the background to this was an increasing concern in the centre around a whole range of... Uh, land grabbing or land theft issues and campaigns and how they could possibly be considered both from an academic and theoretical point of view as well as an activist one and certainly if people are interested in leaving their names or joining up uh, with the email list we'll keep people informed of further events around this particular issue. It's not an issue that we want to let go. Yeah. A question from the lady at the back. Hi there. Um this is obviously uh, an international problem and will have to be addressed on an international scale. And so civil society is going to have to protest on an international scale. And I was just wondering if anyone on the panel um, had any ideas about how NGOs can best frame this problem when talking to the public so that it appeals to the values of um, Westerners as well as the Indian middle classes, for example, who've become increasingly divorced from uh, their land and therefore might find it difficult relating to these issues. Okay, can we have a question from the lady at the back? Yeah, I was just wondering... Um the reason that I came tonight is because my area of specialty or specialty research is um, indigenous rights in North America and oil mining. And I haven't heard anything about resource extraction processes tonight and how that is involved in land grabbing where land is taken for oil exploitation or minerals. Um, I particularly focus on the tar sands in Canada and everything that you're talking about as far as coercion and transparency and laws being pushed through 
um, water problems, toxicity, all of this can be said of Canada, which is considered to be a first world country. Um, but it has problems that what would be called third world countries have, and the indigenous people in that country are living in third world conditions. So I'm just wondering if anyone can make a comment on the issue of resource extraction with all of this as well, and how that affects food, too. Okay, and... Uh, <laughs> thank you. And uh, the, the person just be behind you. Thank you. Hi, uh, my question is linked uh, to what the girl said. Uh, you said there are different kind of land grabbing, so if you want to identify and fight against it, what could be like the common point of all the land grabbings? Is it like the change of use of the land, or the destination of the product for exportation, for export, or the inequal relation of the transaction? Or what, what would be the, the common point to identify when there is a land grabbing or not? So we can maybe, uh, what you're saying, extend the concept to other kind of, uh, well, land grab? Okay, thank you. And can I just take a fourth question for the lady just there? Thank you. Um, I kind of have a question. Um, I'm writing my dissertation pretty much about um, corporations and land grabbing, more specifically in Cambodia. And I was wondering if you could maybe comment on if there, about the rule or lack there of law in terms of criminal responsibility or criminality in law in terms of er, for corporations, criminal law and corporations, and what um, the insufficiency of that in general. Okay, thank you. Um, Megan, can I ask you to uh, pick up on the question of uh, NGOs and campaigning? Mm -hmm. And you can address any of the other ones. But I, I don't want every single person to answer all four questions. That would keep. Yes, I mean, I think that it's... Um It is a constant struggle as a campaigning organisation for us to try and make these issues, issues live, to make, um, to be not, not just in terms of being able to get attention from media and journalists and getting headlines which continue the story outwards, but also now thinking about social media and how you can use Twitter and Facebook and these other mechanisms for getting the story told. Um, in terms of trying to engage the public in the West... It's, it is very difficult. We in London especially are very divorced from our, our supply chains for food. Uh, there are, I think for us, two things clearly work. The first is what Fred already did, which is put faces and names to this story. We need to personalise the issue. It's really, really important. This isn't just about big companies and logos or about grain stocks or transportation. This is about people. The second issue is looking at supply chains, looking at the fact that this isn't... This isn't just Chinese companies, this isn't just um, Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds, this is UK companies, this is American companies, and we are consuming food that's produced through these land grabs, and that, really, that supply chain issue really needs to be addressed as well, which is why the Tate and Lyle case from Cambodia is so pertinent. There is a, there's a campaign called Blood Sugar on this, and I really encourage you to get involved in this. There's a Navaz petition going around. There's a big momentum building around tackling Tate and Lyle on this, so please get involved. Right. Uh, thanks. Yes, on, on Canada, I mean, there's, there is a huge amount of um, uh, uh, grassroots activity going on right now. I mean, the last few weeks there have been some huge campaigns because of government efforts to wrest more control of the land uh, from native communities and Inuit and others in Canada. So that's, that's very live now. Um, 
And yes, many of these issues uh, do play out in, in the developed world as well. My guess is that there's going to be quite a lot of action in, in the United States in the next few years on exactly these kinds of issues. People tend to think that the problem has been solved, that there's been a settlement on land issues in developed countries. Well, very frequently not. Um, the question was raised about oil and, oil and minerals. Well, yes, there isn't much on that in my book. I just had to, to, to sort of limit my, my scope somewhat. I do mainly agriculture and, and land grabs in, in forest regions. But, yeah, minerals companies and oil companies are hugely active taking over land. I heard the other day some statistics come out of Liberia where, as I mentioned in my, in my talk, up to three-quarters of the land has been given over in concessions to foreign companies. It turns out that more forest land in Liberia is under mining concessions than is under logging concessions. So mining concessions very often have large areas of land. They're going to be logging it as well, though, even though their principal claim is mining. So quite often people are doing different things. So palm oil companies are doing logging as well as uh, maybe doing palm oil after that. Uh, interlocking concessions and interlocking uh, uh, schemes for getting rich. Um, so somebody was asking about, about kind of definitions for for land grabbing. I mean, my sense is just when p land is taken from people without, uh, to use a piece of very valuable jargon, free, prior, and informed consent, um, usually it's done by gov governments. I mean, I began to think writing the book that actually the land grabbers are really very often governments under national laws. I mean, you know, in many countries, particularly in Africa, most of the land was, was kind of nationalized in the interests or held in trust for the people. Um, but now governments, are, you know, they're now bought into the Washington Consensus or whatever. They're now not socialist anymore. And they're now leasing out this land on 49 or 99-year leases and it, forgetting about the bit about holding it in trust for people. Um, so that would be, that would be my... It's a, it's a sort of broad-brush kind of definition. But, but if land is being taken from people without their consent, I think that's where it's land-grabbing. Um, I'll stop there. There are an awful lot of issues about responsibility of corporations, and I think quite a lot of campaigning groups are taking those up um, in, in a whole range of fora in, in the developed world to try and uh, make land grabbers accountable in some sense for what they're doing. Because one, the, I mean, one of the problems raised, one, one of the reasons why people talk so much about foreign and international land grabs is because if it's a domestic land grab, there is at least theoretically some prospect of domestic legal control. But there's much less control that governments can have when it's a foreign company that's grabbing their land. All the, all the chips are with the foreign investor when that happens. Yeah, very briefly, I mean, I agree with uh, Fred on what is common to land grab. I guess the grab part needs to be kept in focus and uh, apart from informed consent, uh, force and coercion probably of a more direct variety also come into the picture. Uh, on the extractive industries, I mean, one reason why I was suggesting that it may not be useful to think of imperial versus post-imperial is precisely because if you consider the Native American or the First Nations in the U.S. or in Canada, uh, you know, there's such a lot of land uh, grab really historically has happened in that particular regard. And it's not just for uh, mining, if you were to look at uh, electricity generation in, in, in Quebec and things like that in the 60s and 70s, then again that sort of comes you know, back into the picture. And extractive industries around the world, one can see a lot of writing from Latin America on that. And the example I gave of the uh, corn tribes in Odisha with respect to Vedanta steel, 
uh, one of the large corporations, a transnational corporation based here in London, is very much concerned with the alienation of land uh, used for agriculture to be used for mining purposes. So I think that's the other important definition of land grabs is that usually associated with the transfer, coercive transfer of control and, and rights to land, there is a dramatic change in land use that, that accompanies it. Okay, we have time just for a couple of questions. So as a forest of hands goes up, I think you, you were first. If you could just wait for the... Also, uh, one of the reasons for land grabbing or that's something related to that is uh, the carbon credits. Is what? Carbon credits. Um, So they are very... If you could just speak up a little bit, please. For investors that get the concession from from, uh, local or domestic governments uh, and... uh, uh, result in displacement and in violence. Um, so I, I just wanted to know if you are aware of that and if it's something is doing uh, about about that aspect. Okay. Okay. It was a question about carbon credits and how how that uh, relates to questions of land acquisition. I think there was a person just behind you. Um, just a question more maybe for Megan, um, but possibly for the whole panel as well. Given everything that we know about the rights that are being breached and the fact that we already produce enough food to feed 10 billion, why can't the countries in the West look closer to home and why, aren't our, why can't our governments penalise the investors before the damaging investments are actually being made, given that we know... Like, is, can prevention not be better than cure, basically? Okay, and we have a question at the front... Yeah. Hi. I, I really appreciated the discussion about informed consent that uh, Ms. McInnes raised, and I'm wondering if I, I could get a little bit more detail about that and what that might require in terms of specifics. I think there are some cases where it's very clear, um, and, and we've seen some examples of that, uh, that there was not informed consent at all. But on some of these sort of uh, uh, more border, either borderline cases or, or nuanced distinctions um, that Dr. Sinho had raised, um, it's less clear to me um, how we might define uh, informed consent and what we might want in ter- to think of in terms of best practices that we can hold uh, uh, companies and governments uh, 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 accountable for, or we can use to, to hold them accountable, um, particularly uh, in a way that might uh, distinguish between what might otherwise be seen as a positive FDI or free will of parties to enter into contract versus... Uh, you know, uh, a coercive relationship uh, where uh, one party has much more information and much more power uh, in terms of negotiating the acquisition. Okay, thank you. And uh, I know that lady has been waiting for a very long time. Uh, Apologies for that. And this will have to be the last question. Thank you. Um, I'm very pleased uh, with the lady from Canada that mentioned uh, or brought to the attention of the audience the the role played by the uh, mining industry. I think it has been um, 
totally ignored um, by the panel. Uh, and, and I think it's very important to raise awareness that uh, in Latin America, for example, it's not just uh, large extensions of land that are being auctioned um, and taken f from the communities. It's also, uh, for example, in the case of Colombia, 40% of the land is uh, of the country, of the whole country, is now... Okay, we, we are really running out of time. For, uh, not for mining concessions, sorry. Yeah. And the same happens in, in Guatemala. But the, uh, to me, the most important thing is that nobody mentioned the impact of global theft of land on women. And women okay. happen to be the people that are most affected by land grabbing. I just okay. wanted to raise awareness of okay. that. Thank you very much for that. Um, we have exactly two minutes for our panellists <laughs> to respond to those quite uh, uh, complicated can I, can questions. I have a quick go, a couple of them. Um, on, on carbon credits, I, I did quite a lot about green grabbing um, for various reasons. Some of it is for some wildlife parks. But there is an awful lot of forest that is now being taken over from people in the interest of making money out of carbon credits. That's a growing issue um, that, that, that I think deserves more attention. Um, Free, prior, and informed consent, there's, I mean, there's a huge conflict over land. There are many conflicting land rights in many countries. Uh, there are communal land rights, and then there are mining land rights that may overwhelm them. There's just a huge amount of confusion about who has what rights to land. And that creates um, quite a lot of risk for corporations that, coming in, that are coming in. And I think one thing that is going to have to be a lot of attention drawn to would-be investors is the nature of the risk that they run when they take over what they're told is perhaps empty land or land over which they can have full title when actually a whole series of other people also have title to it. Sometimes mining companies, um, but a whole sort of range of things going on. Um, but in that conflicting issue about land rights, when there are communal rights, where there are traditional land rights, which in general people like me would want to support, there is an issue about women's access. Very often traditional land rights discriminate very badly against women. There is a conflict uh, that I think I recognise uh, but needs to be addressed more about if you are in favour of traditional land rights and communal land rights, where does that leave women? It may leave them worse off than they were before. And that's something which I don't think the NGO community has addressed yet. Okay. Um, yes, I mean, I would, I would agree with what's, what Fred has said around the importance of recognizing women's rights and the specific problems they're having in relation to land grabbing, and also on the work that he's done and others around the, the green grab and the use of carbon credits and other uh, climate financing mechanisms to actually grab control of these resources. Um, I guess I need to respond to the question around uh, looking closer to home and the importance of company regulations. We would completely agree with you. The, from, from our perspective, when we're thinking about what needs to change, either at the local level or the international level, uh, in terms of how to address these, this land-grabbing issue, what fundamentally needs to change right, is, is the rules of the game right now. So when people talk about um, working with private sector to, to develop voluntary initiatives where the private sector gets to define the rules of the game, this is not enough for us because we do not believe that the evidence of previous voluntary private sector-led initiatives 
are going to tackle what is actually a, a, a real crisis right now. And therefore, we are looking towards regulation, uh, regulation in the host country governments where the, who are receiving these investments, and also regulations in countries like the UK. Now, um, in David Cameron's Davos speech a couple of weeks ago, he talked about transparency, he talked about the need for uh, a, an initiative to tackle large-scale land investments. He also talked about the need for the G8 to get their own house in order first. So what we're hoping that means is that the UK government is actually going to start thinking about setting up some kind of regulatory mechanism to look at the way in which UK companies are, or companies which are based in the UK or registered in the UK or have assets in the UK, the way in which they're operating overseas. Because that for us would be an incredibly important start. And for us, if that's if the G8 can come out with a statement committing G8 members to those kind of regulations, we will have made a significant change in terms of the global agenda right now. Yeah. Just very briefly, uh, you know, the fact that there are ferocious counterattacks by people who are victims of land grabs, both towards governments in their own countries, but also towards large corporations all across the world, I think it makes it impossible for governments and corporations to do nothing about this. So effectively what you find is that in country after country, and again, India is one example that I know well, uh, as a kind of compromise against, for example, Maoism, you will find that even the Indian Planning Commission, which is no bastion of left-wing thinking at least these days, has you know, come out with a report in 2008 where it documents land grabs all across the country and thinks of that both as a reason for continued and deepening poverty as well as a reason for continued and deepening conflict over land. So uh, somehow the politics around land grabs in many locations, Latin America being, I think, another example, has forced this into the consciousness of corporations and of governments uh, to the extent that to do this in a covert manner or for information about this to remain covert is less possible now uh, than it was, uh, let us say, in 2008 or earlier. Okay, thank you. Uh, we have run out of time. Um, our speakers will be outside if you would like to talk to them uh, in the reception, to which you're very welcome. Before I give my formal thanks to our speakers, can I let you know about an event next week? We will be hosting Navi Pillai, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, on Friday the 15th of February at 6 o'clock. And the lecture is free to attend, but you will need a ticket to attend, and you can get a, an online ticket from the LSE events page. And if you want to be informed about further uh, and future centre activities, you can sign up online at the centre's website, uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter at LSE Human Rights. Can I thank Fred Pierce, Megan McInnes, and Subir Sinha for coming to speak to us this evening. And I also thank the LSE stewards, the events office, Zoe Gillard from the Centre, and also yourselves for your very thoughtful questions. Thank you very much indeed.